Hello, my name is Ran, and this is the Flow Artist Podcast. Every episode, my co-host Joe Stewart and I speak with inspiring movers, thinkers, and teachers about how they find their flow and much, much more. Now, before I begin, I'd like to honour the traditional custodians of the land where this podcast is recorded, the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We honour the elders, past, present, and future. I hope you're well. This is our 101st episode, and as I've mentioned in earlier episodes, we're taking the podcast in a slightly different direction. We really want to speak with people about issues of social justice and activism, and that's what we're doing. So our guest in today's episode is Fipe Kianu. Fipe is a Polynesian dancer, an activist, a chocolate maker, a scuba instructor, and a businesswoman. Fipe, as you will learn in our conversation, is of Samoan and German heritage and hails from both Samoa and New Zealand. We were really excited to talk to her in particular about what she's doing with Living Koko, combining sustainability, food sovereignty, cultural education, and of course, chocolate. All things we can get heartily behind. She is an inspiring creator who brought so much great energy. So let's get into our conversation with Fipe. Keanu. All right, feedback. I hope I said that right. You get so. Oh, come on, bro. <laughs> if, I, if I get it wrong. <laughs> Thanks so much for meeting with us today. So great to get the chance to speak with you. Perhaps we could start with you just telling us a little bit about your background and where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Before I start, uh, I'm just going to do an acknowledgement if it's okay. I'd like to bow my head and I'd like to say thank you to the Wurundjeri and the Borong people of the Kulin Nations and I'd like to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land. I'd also like to acknowledge their Elders and their ancestors, past, present, and emerging, and recognize that we are visitors on this land that they that we are blessed to now call home. So yeah, a little bit about myself. <laughs> oh, where do I start? <laughs> um, I grew up in New Zealand and Samoa. My mother is from the village. Vaiusu in Samoa. My father is from the village Vailima, which is up on the hill in Samoa. I did most of my schooling in New Zealand, high school, uni in New Zealand. I studied, my undergrad was accounting and business management. And then I, as soon as I finished uni, I, I disappeared overseas which is a very strange thing for a Samoan woman to do, especially a Samoan woman to do on her own. And I think for a lot of my family, a lot of my family were quite against it, but I was actually trying to move away from from a potential marriage that I was going to fall into that wasn't good for me. So the furthest place away from it was London. I landed in Europe and I spent three years there came back to New Zealand and then I moved to Thailand and did a lot of scuba diving courses and things like that. I just fell in love with the water, the Timuana, all over again and, yeah, started, I guess, my path on reconnecting to the Moana and reconnecting to dance too, actually. I'm a 
professional Polynesian dancer and teacher in Polynesian dance. I'm also a classical guitarist, trained classical guitarist. I'm also a chocolate maker, <laughs> and I and I get very creative with cacao. And I'm also a business owner, so I have a business called Living Coco, which brings cacao from over 130 domestic pot farms in the Pacific Islands, mainly in Samoa, and we manufacture cacao here. And then I also have another business called Vayusu, which is an acknowledgement and to honor my village back home in Samoa. And Vayusu works with emerging and really established artists to create Gosh, whatever we want. Mm-hmm. Theatre productions, we have pop-up shots, we do workshops, we do lots of things that I guess ground us and connect us to culture. And then we also run programs in schools for the for the young people. Yeah. That's quite a lot. <laughs> <I'm pissy. laughs> you seem yeah. so chill. <laughs> it's the chilies. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember hearing about kind of the history of cacao in Samoa and your own family history and connection to that, which I actually found was a really fascinating story and totally new to me. Would you like to share a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So the farmers, and many farmers in Samoa tell me that cacao came to Samoa well before Western settlement, German settlement. But what is documented and written down is that the Germans brought cacao to Samoa. What I've learned with my time working and consulting with the Melbourne Museum and us going through a lot of the Pacific Island artifacts is the community know the stories. The community know the true stories that have been passed down from generation to generation. So cacao has, I believe cacao has been in Samoa for hundreds of years and was brought to to Samoa, was brought to Samoa when the Pacific Islanders, when the Samoans were, when the Polynesians, sorry, were traveling through the Americas, through throughout the Pacific Ocean, and it was brought back with many other kinds of fruit and vegetation. My family, <laughs> my family have a history of cacao and Samoa on both sides of the family. My grandfather, he created his own strand of cacao, it's called Luffy Seven, Luffy is the area that he was bringing together a series of cuttings and grafts to create a stronger strand of cacao for Samoa. There was a time in Samoa that three quarters of Samoa was covered in either cacao or coffee plantations and a lot of like coffee, cacao and copra, just the hard part of the coconut, was being exported to, to Europe. And my grandfather on my mother's side Laulu John Cecilia Stanley was kind of like a pioneer in, in supporting Samoa and exporting cacao to, to Germany. So he activated many villages to, to grow cocoa, uh, or cacao, <laughs> to grow cocoa. And then through a company that he worked, which was called Westec, they fermented and dried the cacao. So cacao needs to be fermented from five to seven days, and then dried from one to two weeks, sun-dried. So he would support them in doing that, and then it was all being shipped to Europe. My grandfather was he was the high chief of our village. He was the high chief of our village, but he was also the high chief of our whole district. So he held so many beautiful relationships with many of the Matai, the chief, and a lot of the other villages. And 
was able to activate those spaces. He also started the very first marching band <laughs> in Samoa. He used to he used to contact schools like Melbourne Grammar and be like, "Hey, do you want a cultural experience? Why don't you come and bring your students? And on the way, can you bring us a trombone? Or on the way, can you bring us a snare drum?" And they used to bring drums and and instruments. And Papa started like the first marching band, which ended up touring through Europe and was really well known. The Vayusu, which is named after our village, the Vayusu Marching Band. So, yeah, that's, I guess, our history with Koko on my mother's side. And then my father's side, my grandfather, Arthur Preuss, he was German and he was an exporter of cacao. So he used to buy a lot of cacao and send it overseas too. So we have that side and my mum and my aunties and uncles would all spend a lot of their school holidays and after school tending to cacao and making sure weeding and things like that and tending to all the plantations. So they have a lot of knowledge about, yeah, how to grow and support cacao. Is there any conflict with the, like, Indigenous plants and animals and the cacao farming or is it kind of a coexistence between, you know, the plants that have always been growing in Samoa? Uh, Like what I'm thinking about is, say, like palm oil is so notorious for just decimating the local landscape, but it sounds like cacao isn't. Like it sounds like it's something that's been there for hundreds and hundreds of years and is a crop that can be harvested but doesn't take away from the landscape that's always been there. Yeah, it is a crop that that works with many of the different kinds of plants and trees around it. Cacao has like a kind of, I call it a, the relationship between the cacao and the coconut. The coconut's like an auntie to the cacao and watches over the cacao needs to be, the cacao when we, when we grow the cacao from a seed, it is put into a mulch made out of coconut husk and cacao pod. And so the nutrients from both of those pods and husks uh, help the cacao grow. A lot of the plants that we plant around the cacao also support its growth, but the cacao also supports that. Which, because it's been there for so long, a lot of the vegetation in the Pacific Islands has been brought over well before colonization. You know, when <laughs> when lava is being spewed out from the middle of the ocean to create islands, you know, and it's not spewing up. It's just hot, liquid lava. So it's usually brought over by by birds or by, you know, moving along the ocean. Coconuts can move from one island to the other and and then germinate and, and, you know, plant themselves on the next island. So, yeah, there's just a lot of, I guess, around the Pacific and around that time there was a lot of trees and vegetation brought there that supported each other. There's a lot of things that has been introduced and especially over the last probably 50 or so years and you'll see it when you go into the bush. There's a vine that is just like killing a lot of the vegetation and it just grows. Like At first you're like, wow, that looks great. That looks so beautiful. And then you realize what it's doing and now it's blocking off a lot of the light from all the trees. It's killing off a lot of the coconuts and that's an introduced species. Yeah, so. And so... We'll definitely talk more about how you work with local village economies back on your home island and other places as well. But I'd also really like to kind of hear about how you're working with Indigenous women here in Melbourne. 
for the people who like work at your factories, is it a little bit part of a social enterprise or are they just people that you know who you've just brought in to work with you? At the factory here in Melbourne? Yeah. Yeah, we have some amazing global Indigenous women who work with us and they found us. (laughs) (laughs) I guess my heart may have put out a calling for a team. There was many years of working on Living Coco by myself with my partner, but my partner also still worked full time. And, you know, we both still work our other projects as well as Living Coco. But, you know, the majority of it was done by myself. So it felt like there was a moment where I I realized I needed help and support. And then just the right people seemed to have come through and find me. Yeah, which has been a real blessing. Sal and Lalena, two of my teammates, and every day is just crack ups like just laughter <laughs> just laughter sharing culture sharing how uh, cultural dances talking what it's like back home in our villages bringing food for each other to share it feels like being back home and you know just being with all the aunties you know the cackles the laughing <laughs> and, like that kind of stuff it doesn't feel like work but then living Coco never really feels like work yeah was there a, a kind of particular event that made you decide you wanted to start living Coco? Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I guess. My life. <laughs> um, <laughs> like, how do I even put that? Yeah, I guess it was a moment in time and that where everything kind of came together and and it wasn't a very, it's not, I guess, the nicest kind of story in some ways, but... There's my partner's story, which is uh, he was trekking in Papua New Guinea and on the first night of their trek, the first day actually, they were just setting up camp and their whole group were attacked and three of the porters were killed and a number of them were really badly injured. They, They were asked to be, they were asked to lie down face first and had their Achilles cut. So they couldn't chase after the trekkers. When that happened, the Australians that were on this trek were moved pretty quickly out of PNG and the locals were put into their local hospital and, and didn't get, I guess, the same care that was given to a lot of the people that had come back to Australia. Glenn and some of his trekking mates worked really hard to bring Andrew, one of the porters, over. and. He ended up staying in Melbourne for about six months. They had a segment on Australian story about the attack and that, and they were trying to raise funds for the porters that now couldn't do these long walks Mm. and the families of the people that had lost their family members. The six months that Andrew was with us, there were lots of conversations about what he could do, another business, and he started talking about cacao and that he had so many plants and trees at the back. And that kind of started the process of, like, I guess, uh, educating him or him understanding more about the fermentation and drying and then us trying to learn how to make chocolate because <laughs> I never really knew I was going to be a chocolate maker until probably about six, five, six years ago when this all started to happen. So as those conversations were happening with Glenn and Drew, 
I was giving my five cents and every down and again and realized it was just this, I guess, archive of knowledge on how to cultivate cacao, which had obviously been archived and then <laughs> stored off site in my brain. <laughs> and then I was like, oh no, it's this. Oh no, it's this. And I'm like, well, how do I know this? And I realized it was all just via osmosis and being around family and hearing all that kind of stuff. So yeah, then Living Koko kind of was born from that. We went back to Samoa and I'd been going back and forth to Samoa for many years. I was a scuba diving teacher in Samoa around 2008 and always wanted to figure out a way to come back and give back to my community in some way. And, you know, I guess living Koko was the wako, the, the canoe that helped us get to, for me to realize what I wanted to do to give back to, to Samoa. Yeah, we ended up connecting with an organization called Women in Business, which is which is like my aunties. Women in Business is an organization in Samoa that supports people getting into traditional ways of agriculture. And they are also one of the, they're the only supplier of coconut oil to the body shop now. Like they've got this great co-op going with uh, coconut farmers and and have been working for many years with the body shop to make sure that they could find ethical coconut oil. And they also supported us in trying to get cacao. And yeah, it just kind of grew from there. And so you say that chocolate making of the type that you sell is kind of new. When you were growing up, how was cacao prepared and eaten? Like, how do you remember it as a kid? Oh, yeah. How is it prepared? It is a very long process of taking it from the tree. So straight from the trees in your backyard. It's hard to even say it from that because it's not even a process that starts from picking the fruit. Like it's a process of starting to germinate the seed. And, you know, I think if you honour and value each step along the way when you're picking the fruit, it's even more part of the, you know, I guess the ceremony or the ritual of being able to drink or enjoy the cocoa at the end. So but we'll take it from the tree <laughs> just because it's only an hour show. Um, <laughs> so when you take it from the tree, you pull out the seeds. Some people will ferment and dry it, but others will just take it straight from the pod with the wet white flesh over it and, and start to roast it from there. You roast it till it's black, till it looks burnt. You want it completely burnt and dry. And then while you're drying it, you while you're burning it and drying it over the hot fire, you're also cracking the shell with a stick and then with a lemongrass or with a, a kind of straw in some way, you're blowing away the shell because the shell just burns away and you're just left with the black seed. We then take that into what we're using, like a kind of like a tree trunk, a holiday tree trunk and a <laughs> What's, I don't know what the English word is. Like a pestle? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> and we would just pound it and pound it and pound it to activate all the cacao butter in there. It becomes like a very thick black paste. And then that is used for our drink. So we either put that whole thick black paste into water and cook it that way and to make the cacao drink, or we let it solidify into a cup. And then when we're ready to use it, we'll grate it. So if you've got a lot of people together, then you'll probably just put the whole thing into. And remember those like really old big teapots, like those silver teapots that you have over the fire. We would have one of those to to cook it all in. Drinking cacao in Samoa, like cacao, 
Koko Samo is what we call that drink. And Koko Samo is a, has been like the traditional drink for Samoa forever, <laughs> forever. Like there was not really drink. We didn't really drink coffee, lattes and things like that. It was Koko Samoa. And you knew when you were being served a glass of Koko Samoa that it was a time for deep talanoa, like deep conversations you know, you're going to be sitting there for four hours, <laughs> lots of silence. And then, oh yeah, you then until you think of the next thing to say. And then that, you know, you go down a journey about this cousin and where they're at. And so you, you sit with someone four cups of cocoa later and you'll discuss everything you can think of. And then it's time to go home, but you're getting like everything off your chest. It's not, I think here we have you know, I've got to just go have a coffee. I've got an hour break. You know, what can we talk about in that hour, which becomes very kind of surface conversations. You know, it's very rare that we go and visit and sit with someone, you know, or in a plantation or in the whale or whale is like a whale's house. It's like a thatched roof house with poles and it's open air. So the wind can come blowing through and you're just sitting there enjoying you know, all the sounds of nature with your cup of cocoa and I guess being immersed in, in nature is really nice. So that's my memories of drinking it. <laughs> Beautiful. And is it sweet? <laughs> no, no, it's bitter ass. <laughs> um, you can put sweetener in it. Um, sometimes honey, like we have bush honey or, you know, a lot of families nowadays use sugar, but then a lot of people just don't put sweetener in at all. Just like having a black coffee. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know why, as you were describing it, though, I was actually salivating. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know. Like, oh, I, I could like, really yeah. go one. <laughs> I could go some tropical breezes. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so we've just noticed from like festivals that we've been at, and one person comes to mind in particular who I'm just going to call a white boy shaman with a little raise of the eyebrow and it seems cacao ceremonies are becoming really trendy and really popular. And the one that we went to that he led seemed very detached from any culture in particular. He kind of just did his own thing with it and being a yoga teacher and also sharing from another culture. There's definitely a lot of thought that goes into how can I share these beautiful practices that mean a lot to me in a way that really honors that source How do you feel about the popularity of cacao ceremonies? And if it is something that people are really drawn to, do you have any recommendations for how people can really learn from an authentic source and really honour those traditions? For me, it's hard to make comments about that. I, especially when I see that like these ceremonies are so different to ours. So, uh, like ours is to start with, I guess we're not taking the cacao from a bag, you know, we, we take it's right from, from, from the finua or fanua, the earth. And so when we're thinking that our earth that we're taking this cocoa from is the same earth that our ancestors bodies are buried in. So our ancestors bodies are nourishing this cocoa. You know, we have a very different, I guess, lens on it all compared to the spaces that are doing cacao ceremonies here. And, the, and you know, I also understand that this is a very different jungle <laughs> to, to what things are back home. And I, like, I totally understand where you're coming from. 
and I'll touch on that soon. But I also want to acknowledge that we all got to find moments of peace in this crazy jungle wherever we can and in the most respectful way we can. I, I can't really comment on on this person that you're bringing up as an example because I've never seen what he does. And part of me thinks, well, if someone's creating a ceremony and it's their own ceremony with their own, you know, and they're not actually connecting it to a culture, you know, perhaps that is a good thing. Perhaps they're not using someone else's culture to make money from that. If he was doing it with cocoa, whether he was doing it with an onion, whether he was doing it with chili, like if he's creating an, a moment that's going to help people walk with intention and consideration, then maybe that's a good thing. If he was to do it and start talking about, you know, Mayan tradition and things like that and the source of, I guess, you know, there's different cultures, there are different kinds of cacao ceremony, but if he was talking about that and and isn't man, you know, there are questions about whether that is appropriate, whether people, you know, people are making money off that, whether it probably doesn't sit very well with with me and a lot of people from, you know, the South Americas that are still doing those kinds of ceremonies today. Yeah, it's so hard. It's such a, uh, I know a lot of my friends would just be like, nah, it's Keep it. It's <laughs> and, and I agree it is but and then it's sometimes I'm just like we all deserve a moment of peace and if what he has created has given someone in that audience a half an hour of peace then then that's a good thing too yeah so it's hard to comment yeah, just hearing your description of like it even starts before the tree is planted and then it's all about connecting with family and sharing history. It's a very different very experience. Different. Yeah. Well, you know, life is ceremony. It's not just a half-hour session or a one-hour session or something like that. You know, it's your whole life, how you walk in te- with intention, with consideration, and you learn that and we, you know, in some ways we teach that through Polynesian dance, every step you take is so gentle and considered because the way you place your feet on this earth needs to be. If you're, you know, creating disruption, you're, you got to think about what are you, you know, what are, what vibration are you contributing into this planet? And when at times when I was taught different styles of Polynesian dance, everything is connected to like the concentric ecologies that are happening around you not just your your to start with your siva or your movement is representing a natural resource so you're personifying a natural resource with your movement that it automatically makes you recognize it respect it and want to honor it in everything you do and then also when you're learning how to dance and we're really blessed in Samoa that we are still living on our custodial lands. My grandparents are buried right next to our front door. Right? We're having, in the past, we had gatherings and stuff around their their graves. It, it's Death is so much still part of life and their presence is still much a part of our life. So, And also, you know, they're my ancestors. Their bodies are nurturing the trees that are around me that as I'm dancing, I'm breathing this air that is contributing to help me dance and giving me strength. So there's all these ecosystems that are happening around me contributing to my dance. It all becomes ceremony, everything. It, all these ecosystems that are contributing to 
the drinking of the cacao at the end. You know, it's not just a, oh, I'm taking this half hour moment as this intent and writing my intentions for me. And it's no, it's not just about you. <laughs> it's about everyone. It's about the full community and not just the community as in like your, your ainga, your family. It's the community, the full community. What are you contributing? So I guess, you know, when I think of ceremony, I think of all that thing, that space. And it's the same in like Maori culture too. Similar to Tahitian, many Pacific islands, when they go and we go to get flax or, you know, stuff to weave with, there's whole karakia, there's a whole prayer being said before you harvest. When you go and collect flowers to make your lei, you're going to be making a lei and every flower you sow is a blessing for someone. So you are asking the tree for permission and the trees and the bush will guide you on which flowers are ready to be taken. And if you stop and actually deeply listen, you'll be guided with its energy. It's not buying the plastic lay from the shops. You know, there's, <laughs> there's massive disconnections mm-hmm. with when people have moved, when people are in diaspora, and then have also disconnected themselves from their cultures is also this disconnection to their land. And then also all that, uh, you know, indigenous knowledge, all that deep relationship with your environment that is, can be very hard to find in a city. You know, we try, we really try <laughs> to ground ourselves and, and find spaces of nature to ground ourselves, but it's not in your face constantly like it is back home. Hello, Ran here to talk about our Patreon page. Patreon is a way that you can help support the podcast for as little as $1 a month. Higher tiers get access to extra special content as well as a listing on our website and a shout out on the podcast. If you'd like to help us with a small monthly donation, just go to patreon.com slash flowartistpodcast and join in the fun. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can share this episode on social media, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, or just reach out and let us know your thoughts on this episode or anything else in particular. All right, let's get back to our conversation with Fipe. And there's a particular flavor to what you've shared and what I see you share online as well, because you're really like an activist and committed to like food sovereignty and Indigenous land rights and environmental issues and like really grappling with some real life issues that are intense and super important to think about. But you approach it with like dance and theatre and delicious cacao and I don't know if it's just this is how you move through the world and this is what lights you up, so <laughs> this is me. how you share. <laughs> or it's like, okay, this is some real hard shit to think about, so let me shine light and let me express this in a way that's like sensual and connected to nature and I guess kind of lure people in with the delicious stuff and then get them thinking about the like layers beneath that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, what you said. No, um, <laughs> I mean, it's not, I don't sit there and intentionally put together my strategy of putting this out. I guess it is. It's not a master plan. <laughs> yeah, it's not a master plan to take over the world with cacao. It's a good plan though. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but it could make money, but it hasn't yet. <laughs> you know, I think for me, it's just lots of things that are important and my way of 
Yeah, I guess activism isn't, you know, all activism is important and all different ways are important. My way has been more of a gentle, like, you know, have we thought about this? Have we thought about this? Or planting seeds, you know, like I mentioned with that project, transitioning cultural seeds, you know, planting their seeds so people can go away and and work through, do the work and think of it through it themselves. If you just drop a couple of seeds here and there, it'll help them cultivate their own thoughts on it instead of trying to push things down people's throats, which, you know, works in some ways. I'm not saying it doesn't, but I just haven't been that good at that, doing that kind of stuff. <laughs> and, and yeah. And I guess also as a, as a Samoan woman, you grow up uh, as a Samoan young person, you grow up knowing your space within your village and within your community and where you can speak up and when you should speak up. And, and, you know, and we probably are brought up being seen and not heard in a lot of, <laughs> lot of ways, but there is a gentle way of bringing your thoughts and, and, and what you, and your beliefs and what you value to the forefront to help people, to take people on a journey. Cause that's what you want to like, people to be taken on a journey and for all of you to arrive together and feel empowered to have a voice on a subject together instead of shouting at someone and then running off. And actually, do you want to even go into a little bit more that chocolate, that project that you just very briefly mentioned about planting seeds? Because that's such a beautiful metaphor for what you do. Yeah. Transitioning cultural seeds is a beautiful project that I'm creating with an amazing community of elders and mainly women, women elders and well, people within the Western suburbs. I start there through COVID. We realized that a lot of people were turning back to the whenua, back to the land, whether it was, you know, all of a sudden your house was full of plants or, or, you know, your garden was finally being tended to, but everyone was trying to get that connection back to the land and whether it was back with nature, I think we realized how much we missed it when we when we were in our five kilometer radius. And with it, with our business living koko, we had Samon elders ask us for the beans, the unroasted beans. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. Usually we sell, you know, we sell chocolate, we sell the end product all wrapped all pretty, but they were wanting the raw cacao beans. And we realized that people were had the time to share cultural knowledge. So there were open fires in the backyard as elders were showing their grandchildren how to roast it, how to pound it, how to make the traditional koko drink. So as that was happening through living koko, there was another friend of ours, Stephanie, whose grandmother grows chilies in her backyard. She has a huge chili garden. It's just chilies. <laughs> and the seeds she brought, she asked her family to bring for her her from Macedonia I think it was over 50 years ago and I'm sorry if I've gotten that wrong but many years ago and it's the same seeds that she has been cultivating and every year they dry it they make different dishes out of it and she was passing that knowledge down to her grandkids so it made me go ding <laughs> it's all this amazing cultural knowledge that is shared through food and food is like food is political food is you know, it's sensual, but it's also political. It has so much history in it. And, you know, that history sits with our grandparents and our elders to start with. So how about we, if we could document that through video and through them telling their stories and passing that knowledge on, then that would be 
a beautiful moment to share with everyone. So the focus is mainly in the western suburbs. We have so far we have a Macedonian family, a Samoan family whose elder actually when she was a child used to sell her koko to my grandfather. So uh, she is from the same village as me and we kind of found each other more so through during COVID times when she was doing that traditional stuff. So, yeah, the videos or the short documentary hopefully will be coming out probably early next year. But my intention is to take some of the ingredients and make chocolates with each ingredient that is cultivated in their backyards and then also to have like a chocolate tasting while we're watching the film together. (laughs) So I think that will be really nice. At each segment when you're learning the stories, you get to taste a chocolate with their ingredient in it. Yeah. So yeah, transitioning cultural seeds. It's I think it's really important. <laughs> yeah, that sounds delicious. <laughs> Deliciously <laughs> important. <laughs> Just hearing about these rhythms of life, and I guess it's a bit of a cliche as well about island life and island time and picking the flower that is perfectly ready and really taking time to sit and to share stories. Does it feel like a bit of a conflict to the pace that you have to move at to run a business and do everything that you need to do with all of your different projects? Or is it like you drop into stillness when it's time to drop in and then when it's time to go, you go? Uh, I think it used to feel that way. And that's when I realised I was probably forcing things that shouldn't have, wasn't its time to do. It's taken me a number of years to realise to yeah, to I guess trust my gut feelings and, and things that are being forced. I hear island time and Samoa Samoa time and stuff, and I love it. I love that things are done when the time is right, and things aren't forced. And you know, people are so welcoming that when you do show up late, you're still welcomed into the home. There's enough for everyone. As I said, we live in a very different jungle here, and unfortunately, the machine that we Uh, born into or raised into in a western framework doesn't allow that some of the best years of our lives are taken up working nine to five for spaces that don't value us that you know we strive so hard to get into jobs that then make us redundant (laughs) and our whole self-worth is caught up in those spaces even when I started living Coco, I remember you know it was a couple of years before I was even able to pay myself even a tiny bit as most small businesses, but I didn't realize how much my self-worth was connected to seeing that nine to, uh, that you know monthly paycheck come into my account. And so I had to realize you know all the many other currencies that living Coco and that I value. And if you think of like we always talk about like living Coco being a waka or a va'a, like a canoe, and if the only currency that floats your boat as money if you only value money you know you're not going to last very long with the business you know there's many different currencies that or currents that hold up your waka and they have to be you know reciprocity and kindness and you know intentional stepping and consideration and all that stuff and as long as all those are in balance you know the money ends up coming because people believe in what you do and you believe so much in what you do so yeah <laughs> to go back to the island time, yeah, it is a bit of just just trying to be present in whatever I can do. And I think COVID also taught me 
<laughs> COVID definitely told me that 2019 Fipe could do way more than 2021. <laughs> like, <laughs> like I still, I still have a very busy life, but I'm definitely learning my boundaries and what I'm capable of doing within a week and when I need to honor my downtime. Yeah. But then like something like this, this just feeds my soul, right? <laughs> like these conversations feed my soul. And to be able to share with you all is so nice. It doesn't feel like a chore. It feels like I was excited to come. I've spent a day filming somewhere else, but I was excited to come and hang with you guys. I, it's nice, man. <laughs> yeah, we're excited to have you here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I feel like stuff like this, it's like when other really hard, depressing things are going on in the world. It's like, this is the bright light that you're just like, yes, there's still positive energy flowing. There's still people doing inspiring things. I can contribute to that. People can buy your chocolate. <laughs> they can go to your shows or they can like nurture that little seed inside them, which is like their idea that's like, oh, I don't even know how I'm going to make money from this, but maybe I'll make money doing something else and still like grow and nurture like this heart project. Yeah. Yeah. And like a lot of my projects are just heart projects, like transitioning cultural seeds. We have a grant and I make sure that, you know, everyone else gets paid before I get paid. Everyone else gets paid the right amount before I get paid. And if I don't get paid, I don't get paid. You know, I, you get paid in other ways. Like this is still going to be a great project that everyone's going to have heart swells over and we're all going to feel closer together as a community. And, you know, it shines also a light on the Macedonian community and what they've gone through with war and colonization in their own spaces. And even with their with these peppers, how other other countries are claiming that these peppers belong to them. And, you know, there's just, you know, the politicalness that comes with food and food sovereignty and things like that. Yeah. All of this kind of weaves into each other. It all weaves into each other. It has to. Yeah, it has to. Do you have moments when you're just like, why did I take on so much? And <laughs> <laughs> I have to like, how do I pare down to have that like balance between passion and rest? Actually, I had a couple of those moments during our recent show, which was called Iputi. But I think that was more to do with <laughs> me and a sister of mine, Ere Peti Waratini. She, we created a show and it was to help us heal through what we had gone through with COVID, but also the grief that I'd gone through with losing my dad just before we all went into lockdown. And I've learned that doing a show about losing your dad you just feel that grief every time you show up to rehearsal and, you know, you just keep reliving those moments. And a lot of the, some of the pieces were about, I constantly played as he lay there taking his last breaths. So, you know, whenever I went to a rehearsal, I was back in the hospital playing the guitar for him and, and feeling that I think the only time I didn't cry <laughs> was actually at the show, the final performance, but every rehearsal I was just, in the thick of the emotion. And I think that's when I find it really hard because I'm back into a space of grief. With grief comes a very sensitive heart space. And so I can't see very clearly of what is actually people trying to support me. And, and, and I feel like, you know, everything is just, my heart's just been ripped into shreds. And so leading up to the show was really challenging doing that. And then also trying to manage a business and do all these other things. It was because I was in so much emotion. I'm in such an emotional space and that was overpowering my clear thinking. Yeah. 
but also it was a great release after the show and with everyone that we were able to give that offering and that performance to. There was a lot of us in the whole space that, you know, shed tears and felt like it was a nice collective way to release grief. Yeah, safe way. For everyone but you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Oh, no, it was safe for me too. Just the lead up, hey? Yeah. Mm. It's, and <laughs> you're just like, well, why did I decide to do this to myself? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is interesting because iputi, which means cup of tea, <laughs> um, <laughs> like me and Petty has, we've performed a couple of times. Well, we've, you know, worked together and, but, you know, we didn't have the, we didn't have the grief and, we, you know, we hadn't just gone with good COVID <laughs> to doing a show. So it was a very different, I guess, platform that we were standing on mentally. And so I guess speaking of COVID, how saw your family back home in Samoa? Did it affect them much? Yes and no. And there were no, from my understanding, there were no cases of COVID in Samoa. There may have been one, <laughs> but that was dealt with pretty quickly. But Samoa went into lockdown before most countries. And that was because in, I think it was November. December 2019, we had a measles outbreak in Samoa, which claimed like just under 200 lives, most of them children. So many families during that measles outbreak, actually everyone had to went into lockdown in their houses and doctors went from house to house to check to see who needed measles injections and that. So, you know, as soon as rumors of COVID hit, Samoa was just like, bang, nobody coming in here. It's affected tourism, obviously, the economy. And that's the flow on effect that, you know, then it affects how much money family has, young people, ha- you know, having the funds to send kids to school and that kind of stuff. And so it, it's affecting people in that way. In other ways, people are going back to the land, tending to their lands. Like Samoa isn't running out of food in a way. It's in some ways becoming less reliant on imported foods, which is a good thing. You know, with colonization came a whole bunch of foods that Samoa wasn't, just wasn't very good for us. And, you know, some of the worst foods too, like I think New Zealand was sending over, you know, just the worst parts of the meat mm. into Samoa and, you know, mutton and things like that. And and it's really affected, you know, the health of Pacific Islanders. And there was a time in Samoa where I remember my mum saying that, she would not eat an avocado in public. Like it was embarrassing. It meant that she couldn't afford butter and they would be put, you know, first you weren't allowed to speak your language and then, you know, you'd be shamed for eating avocado. Funny because it's like 20 bucks now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Smashed avocado on a bit of toast. <laughs> but, yeah, back then there was a, a shame for actually eating your traditional foods and Western foods was was better. So going back to the lands and cultivating your lands is you know, a great way of grounding and also connecting to the whanua and, and eating organic foods. Most of Samoa is organic. You know, a lot of people there can't, can't afford um, chemicals and things like that and pesticides and a lot of the cultivation of cultivation of their plantations is done by moon cycles or, you know, watching out for matari'i, which is matariki, the seven sisters, and all the kinds of knowledge that the constellations give us on how to cultivate the lands. Yeah, I guess it's bad in some ways because of the economy, but it's 
good in other ways. Good's probably not a good word to use, but it's okay. <laughs> they're surviving. <laughs> they're survivors and they're resilient. People are making the best of it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I did have a question. Just sort of. <laughs> I know you're kind of like making your about to say something first. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are, the, are they still sort of, are their borders still shut down or even to New Zealand or is New Zealand opening up to? No, it's still shut to New Zealand. Right. We're waiting. Yeah. We're waiting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> waiting. But yeah, we will book a ticket as soon as as soon as it opens up. Yeah, I think the Cook Islands have opened up to New Zealand. All right, All right. I don't know. Another thing I think I read uh, a lot of you know, a lot of Pacific Islanders do seasonal work in New Zealand, and and from my understanding, a lot of farmers in New Zealand complaining that they couldn't get you know what is cheap labour for them and having to pay higher rates. Yeah, it's a bit. I don't know, not cool. Yeah, it's messed up, eh? <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's just, you know, it's just, that's Australia too. You mm. know, there's so many seasonal workers from the Pacific Islands that come to Australia. Mm. But, you know, Australia's been doing it for many years, if you think of the... Blackbirding. Is the blackbirding, yeah, the yeah. sugar plantations, the South Sea, South sea Islanders, the islanders that, that, that don't, well, a lot of them don't know which island they come from originally come from right. and so the as a collective they've called themselves the south sea islanders i think that's right i'm sorry if i've gotten that wrong but yeah it's, it was horrific even trying to when slave labor ended in australia many weren't returned to the their islands many were taken halfway and dumped into the ocean and killed and then you know there's all those mass graves in queensland as well so I think Australia has a, a huge history, and you know, and New Zealand too. I'm not, I'm not just pointing out Australia, of you know, uh, cheap labour, getting cheap labour from other countries, but I, I think yeah, New Zealand and Australia have really struggled with not being able to find people that could work for um, small amounts of pay to to do all the fruit picking. A lot of the fruit went to waste. Hey, you know, like I saw lots of videos of that happening. Right. Yeah, it's a interesting times, eh? Mm. And it's that thing as well that like chocolate as an industry is really notorious for, right? Like using slave labor. Yeah, slave labor, child labor. A lot of farmers in the Ivory Coast in Africa make less than a dollar a day. A lot of them don't get paid until the cacao lands in Europe. So there's been cases where shipments are lost at sea you know for containers fall off into the middle of the ocean and then the farmers just don't get paid so yeah there's slave labor but then there's also child labor where they're promising kids that they're going to take them to a school in a different area but instead they're brought into the farms to work for free yeah it's crazy eh? yeah it's crazy and it's a lot of the chocolate that we eat, you know, it's a, I'm not even going to call it chocolate, it's confectionery. A lot of the confectionery that we eat that are in shops, you know, a lot of the big game chocolate make, confectionery makers, Cadbury, Calabolts, which is mainly like a gourmet chocolate. And they sell it to chocolatiers like uh, Coco Black and things like that to make their chocolates from. And it's all from those kinds of plantations. It's probably not cool for me to name drop those spaces, but, you know, I think we should be aware. I think if you, I think everyone that touches your food 
puts a bit of themselves in it. You know, <laughs> if you're wearing, if you're eating food that along the whole process of, you know, the papa, like the genealogy of your food and where it's from, I think is really important to know that the lands have been honored, you know, that the lands have been looked after. And then if you think of everyone who touched your food, did it with a smile and because they felt honored and they felt blessed, like you're getting some good juju at the end, right? <laughs> like what you're going to be eating at the end is going to feel amazing and feel like a blessing. But, you know, if you're getting it from a space that is, you know, contributing to child labor, to slave labor, to all those negative spaces, I think the product you're going to get at the end is going to be honoring your body either. And if you think about it, some of those farms, some of those cacao buyers have been purchasing from the Ivory Coast and spaces in Africa for over 50 years from the same farms. If your family had a business in Melbourne for 50 years, you got old money, right? Like you'll have a lot of money. (laughs) You're going to have a lot of money. These are still the poorest spaces in the world. That's like at least three generations of running a business, running a farm and still being and still struggling. Like that's not right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not right. That they don't have that there's no food sovereignty there. That they they don't have control over their spaces. That they feel so helpless that they can't get out of that. And I think it's still really bad to exploit someone and not know who it is and just buy that thing because it's cheap and not really think about it. But to exploit a family for 50 years that you would see every season and just like squeeze dry. It's horrific. It is horrific, eh? It's that thing of like being so disconnected to where your food comes from, which comes with the disconnection to the land. When, you know, we, we buy a lot of our stuff from supermarkets. People won't eat. Like I don't really eat meat, but like people don't eat meat and won't eat meat off the bones because they don't want to believe it's an animal. <laughs> you know, this is that kind of stuff that you're like, huh? You, when we're back in Samoa, we're making sure we know where that chick. We're hanging out with that chicken yesterday, and now it's on your plate. <laughs> like you know where your food's coming from. <laughs> you're helping prepare it, but there's such a disconnection here, and that disconnection leads to, you know, inconsiderate ways of being. I guess we're time for our last question. Yeah. Was there anything else you wanted to ask, Karen? No, no. Um, well, except for this last question. So <laughs> it's a big one. We say the, the best for last. <laughs> okay. Yep, yep. Prepare yourself, drum roll. No. Um, so if you could distill everything that you teach and share and have learned pretty much everything down into one core essence, <laughs> what do you think that one thing would be? <laughs> remember this on the list wasn't it uh, it's, a, it's our special surprise question <laughs> well what what just comes to mind right now uh it's a walk of consideration i don't think we use that word enough <laughs> consideration like we use mindfulness and things like that and you know you can take whole courses on mindfulness but like really understand the reciprocity in every relationship that you're in and not just the relationship with other human beings, but, you know, with everything around you, what are you contributing? And if you can't figure that out, then you're probably going to figure out really quickly what you're taking. 
know what you're doing. <laughs> and then start there and figure out what the balance is and then walk with consideration. Beautiful. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you for everything that you've shared and all of the wonderful things that you put out into the world and all of the things that you make people think about. (laughs) I hope they think about it. (laughs) Can't make people think anything. (laughs) You've definitely given me a lot to think about and a lot of beautiful things to eat and enjoy as well. So thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for your time. And I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Fipe. We definitely did. If you're after some of that fine, delicious chocolate, just go to livingcorecore.com and I'll leave a link for that in the show notes. We'll be back with another episode soon. I've got to take a short trip to New Zealand in the next couple of weeks, but we'll be back with some more inspiring guests and conversations. Our theme song is Baby Robots by Ghost Soul and is used with permission. Get us music from ghostsoul.bandcamp.com. Rob, or otherwise known as Ghost Soul, has a new album out and it's pretty chilled, so I think you should go and buy it now. Thank you so much for listening. Joe and I really appreciate you spending your precious time with us. Aroha nui. Big, big love. Listener.